Hi, I'm Debbie Georgettis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to be talking about the anti-Semitic leftist, not really for women's march, the danger of medicine made in China. Author Rosemary Gibson joins me in studio. Donna Brazil admits the Democrat race baiting and a voice for truth from a Parkland dad. And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk on today's first five. Last year we've talked about this, we'll talk about it every year it happens. There is this women's march, which I want to point out, number one is not a women's march. It is a march in favor of radical leftist positions, which some women and men believe in, and which many women do not. But the women's march made the news this week because they finally got rid of Linda Sarsour, a board member of the women's march, stridently, openly anti-Semitic. She is Muslim, she's a Muslim American activist. She supports the BDS movement, which is pretty much the destruction, the starvation of Israel's economy. She is a strident supporter of Sharia. So Linda Sarsour finally out, as I mentioned at the close of yesterday's show, she's found a new gig working for Bernie Sanders. The Democrat presidential candidate who's himself Jewish hired Linda Sarsour, who is stridently anti-Semitic, to be an advisor. That just is a really good window on left-wing thought. All left-wing thought wraps into a little ball of simply hatred of America, hatred of what is good. But the Women's March having to replace Linda Sarsour and having received heavy criticism for having a board member who is stridently anti-Semitic, hates Israel, they replaced her, it's almost unbelievable to imagine, but they replaced her with someone even worse. Replaced her with anti-American Islamist Zahra Billu, Z-A-H-R-A-B-I-L-L-O. She is going to replace Linda Sarsour on the board of the Women's March. A few little gems about this woman. If you thought that the Women's March is trying to move away from anti-Semitism, not so fast. Number one, she loves to tweet out and makes a big news splash every Memorial Day about the idea that she really can't think of anything great to say about America's soldiers. I mean, she's, she's anti-American. These are not confusing things to figure out. She said she tweets between struggles of Memorial Day and whether it's right to honor American soldiers who died in wars. She calls our, our American military occupiers and murderers. She also had a huge, made a huge issue of wanting to honor black liberation soldiers like the Black Panthers. You know, the terrorist organization that was trying to prevent people from voting that group. She also, though, it's really interesting, I mean, talk about a real core down to the wire issue of whether you support America or not. She's been very critical of the Constitution of the United States because, says she, in its main essence, her words, in its main essence, it is diametrically opposed to what Allah has commanded. The Women's March does not stand for women. Put the other way, millions of American women, in fact, I would venture to guess most American women do not ally themselves with a radical Islamist mission of destruction of our constitution, hatred of Israel, destruction of Israel, yet the Women's March, after having 
months of controversy and criticism over their inclusion of Linda Sarsour, who is, by the way, stridently supportive of Sharia, understands Sharia, includes FGM, all sorts of horrific treatment for women. I mean, the irony, the Women's March claiming they stand for women and women's equality, all their political goals are radically left-wing socialist slash communist missions, but even at the core, the idea they say they'd stand for women, and they had Linda Sarsour on their board, someone who supports the unbelievably horrible way in which women are treated under Islamic law, Sharia. But they finally had to get rid of her because great public pressure and brought in someone, I mean, it's truly probably hard to find someone even more anti-American, more anti-Semitic, more hateful of America and even our Constitution. Folks, in closing his first five, this woman does not stand for American women, and this is not the Women's March. This is the radical leftist march of America, and you ought to speak up and tell your friends it has nothing to do with representing the views of women. And that, my friends, is today's first five. We're turning now to a guest I have in studio, which I love and have guests in studio because it's just much more fun than just on the phone. But we have a guest in studio. I first want to hold up and show you the book she wrote for our, I can't see which camera I'm looking at. Okay, this camera, there we go. This is the, the book I want to show you she wrote. Urge you to get it. It is called China RX, Exposing the Risks of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. I did not know until a, good, a mutual friend of ours called me to say, do you know about this business about China being the manufacturer of many you know, vital medicines that we use in America? I had never heard of the issue, but now I have, and now I'm sharing it with you. So first, Rosemary, welcome to the show. Debbie, thanks so much for having me today. So glad you're here. So let's just start with, I, I got it. This is a, the title again of your book is about medicine made in China. So just to start with, very briefest, what is your medical legal writing background? Like, how'd you get involved in this issue? I've written a number of books in healthcare, Debbie, and I, it was time to write another one. And I wanted to write one that was of importance to our country and to our health. And I stumbled on this topic I knew nothing about, about our tremendous dependence on China for medicine. It's an untold story. It is an untold story. And even as we talked earlier today, I was realizing, I, I mean, I'm 90% of America at least has no idea. So let's just start with how much of America's medicine is made in China? What, what are you writing about? Well, we're so dependent on China that if they shut the door on exports of products to the United States, our hospitals would have to shut down within a couple of months. Our pharmacy shelves would be empty. And it's not just us. China controls the global supply, especially of the core ingredients for medicines for the world. I, I, I'm like, how did we get here? But let me just start with, why did this happen? This hasn't always been true. When did, it, when did China gain this dominance in, in the manufacture of medicines and components that we use in America? It started slowly in the late 1980s, continued in the 1990s. And then when the US signed a free trade deal with China in 2000, and China joined the WTO, the floodgates opened. And I document in China RX, it was absolutely stunning to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Once we opened free trade with China, that's when the last penicillin plant in the US closed. We can't make penicillin anymore. It's when the last aspirin plant closed in the US. It's a total landslide in the loss of our ability to make so many of our basic medicines. 
So run through, if you would, you mentioned penicillin, antibiotics, and aspirin. What other kinds of drugs that we in America rely on are they making in China? For what medications or for what illnesses, what kind of medications? Well, sure. Well, today is the anniversary of the anthrax attacks. Remember, yeah. they happened in on Capitol Hill, in media offices in New York City, and in post offices around the country. Well, turns out when the U.S. government needed to buy lots of doses of the antibiotic for exposure to anthrax, we don't make it here. They had to go to a company in Europe. I spoke to the CEO, and he had to get the core ingredients from a plant in China. Okay, the anthrax attack in America, we ultimately were reliant on China that's right. For the content of the medication that made its way to us from Europe to America. That's correct. We have, so if your child has an ear infection and you, they're given an antibiotic, chances are the core ingredients came from China. For all the other uh, infections that people get, the superbugs, last resort antibiotics for Lyme disease, strep throat, it's absolutely stunning. It is absolutely stunning. I'm sitting here getting a little bit <laughs> alarmed yeah. here. Okay, but so with respect to, so China makes these medications and we obviously bring them here, not directly from China manufacturers to the American hospitals, but they're going through American pharmaceutical companies. Is that right? What, is that well, right? China makes the core ingredients and we know India is a big generic drug maker. It turns out India is also dependent on China for these ingredients and they're in the generics we may buy, or American companies. They may have plants in China using the ingredients made there and sold here. It's really global. Even Europe is dependent on China. They're in the same situation as we are, Canada, Australia. It's quite concerning. It's concerning and honestly just kind of overwhelming. So is, are you able to ballpark what percent of the medications we buy in America have either manufactured in China or a component made there? Is it basically almost all of them? Is it, where are we in this percentage-wise? Uh, about 80% of the key ingredients to make our basic medicines, mostly generics we're talking about, they come from China. 80% from China. Now, how many medicines does that actually turn into? That's why I've called for a whole of government review here in the U.S. to know exactly where we are vulnerable and most vulnerable so we can begin to fix it. Okay. Leaving aside the national concern, uh, security concerns I do want to ask about in a moment, are, there must be some sense of concern of quality, concerns about quality of, the, of the, either the components or the entire drug manufactured. You have some stories about that, right? Of the, or the concern about the quality of the production? Oh, sure. China? You know, right after China RX came out, there was a months-long recall of common blood pressure medicines that millions of Americans are taking, Valsartan, Losartan. And it turns out the worst culprit was a company in China, and there was a cancer-causing carcinogen in them. And the amount of carcinogen at the Chinese plant was 200 times the acceptable limit per pill. And, and this 200 is 200 times the acceptable limit for carcinogens per pill. Yes, and this is a carcinogen that's found in rocket fuel. Okay, so we at least, first of all, does the FDA go and inspect these Chinese plants? The, <coughs> the FDA does inspect plants in China and around the world, but the way this was done, it was really behind the scenes and they were not transparent with the FDA or the American public. Okay, so do we, as far as we know, this presence of this carcinogen in the medication you just talked about sure. was accidental? Or is that view, are we worried about why it was done? China did it for, it was economically 
advantageous. It was cheaper for them to make it this way. And that's why it was done. They weren't out to kill anybody, but the fact that they were selling it, and they knew that there was a problem with the medication. They knew that it didn't meet specification, but they sold it anyway to American pharmacies and hospitals. Okay, you were telling a story earlier, and when I was hearing the story, but about how the FDA inspected and got to a point where they said a certain number of medications made in this very large plant in China were no longer going to be authorized in America. And then, and then the FDA kind of stepped back. Now, can you tell that story? Right. This is a great story about how dependent we really are, Debbie. So the FDA went into a big plant in China, and because of real concerns about quality, so the FDA had been getting reports about particles in medicinal products that shouldn't be there and bacterial contamination. So the FDA went in and they banned 29 products from that Chinese plant. But because we're so dependent on those products, the FDA had to exempt 15 of them from its own ban. And we're talking about ingredients for chemotherapy, for cancer treatment. We're talking about antibiotics for treatment of infections. That's how dependent we are. So do most doctors realize this and not mention it to their patients? I mean, who knows this in America? Well, most doctors don't know, and there's no reason they should know, because it's been hidden from us, and certainly the public doesn't know. And that's why I'm so delighted to do this show today with you, to let the public know that this is a real problem for all of us, for, certainly for our national security as well as our health security and our health and well-being. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier, uh, off-air, that you were part of testifying before a U.S.-China commission in yes. Washington just at the end of July of this year about this problem. First, roughly speaking, tell us what you were telling them and what their reaction was. Well, I said that these are the medicines taken by presidents and members of Congress, the military, our veterans. That'll wake them up. <laughs> all of us. And, you know, remember the anthrax attacks were in Capitol Hill. Yeah. And the you know, the core components now, we can't make those medicines anymore. So that was the first statement. And secondly, what we're talking about really are generic drugs, which are 90% of the medicines we take. Sure. And we're losing our ability to make our own medicines. So you mentioned earlier about how much we don't make here anymore. And I think you actually said we can't make them here. We literally don't have the facilities open and available to just turn that, you know, open the door and turn the machines back on and roll. We'd have to take some build-up time to be able to even begin to manufacture them here. Sure, if right? we wanted to make penicillin once again, it would take a couple years to build these very large plants and get the FDA to approve them. So it's not as if we can turn on the, the, the light switch and open up operations. It takes a long time. You know, back to what the doctors do and don't know. So the sure. doctors don't know. The hospitals really have no way of knowing. But the pharmaceutical companies know. They know where they're buying their components from. So they would be a good place to start with to get, force them to disclose. What are you buying from where? Where do your medications come from? Isn't that currently, it seems like it should be something part of federal law that would already require them to do that. Well, there is some labeling law, but it's, it gives the companies a pass. They can put on their labels, well, distributed by, or our business office is here. They don't have to Our say. Our business office. Yeah. And when there was country of origin legislation introduced about 12 years ago in Congress, it was killed right off the bat. And I asked an industry person, well, why? And this person replied, well, the industry probably would think that it wouldn't be good for their business if their customers knew where it was coming from. Oh, boy. So the pharmaceutical companies realized this would not play well in America. 95% of Americans don't trust medicine from China. 
Oh, that was a poll done that 95%, I mean, I can, right. I'm surprised it's not 100 actually, but okay, 95%. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you know, a lot of Americans remember when dogs and cats died from pet food that was contaminated and the infant formula that contained an industrial chemical that hurt you know, infants in China, so. And that was from China, these those two correct. things. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you, you've uncovered this, I mean this book is incredibly rich and detailed, right. in-depth and worth reading to understand, but so you've uncovered all this. So where do we go from here? What, now that you've discovered all this, what should be done about it? Well, the good news is that the hearing that you mentioned, the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, that really woke up. Washington, the Department of Defense testified. And so now this is viewed as a national security issue, especially with what's going on uh, with China. So that's a g real progress in a short amount of time, but we still have a lot of work to do. And I think engaging the public in, under in understanding the situation we're in and what the public can do to try to, f to force reform and bring some of it back home. Yeah, I want to get to what the public can do. I, I really do. But but one last thing about this. You used the expression a national security issue, which the more I was hearing about this, before I even met you, the more I was hearing about it, I was realizing this is a national security issue. Can you lay out some of the reasons you say it's a national security issue? Well, sure. Just imagine our military is dependent on China for some of the components and the medicines it needs. Think of the 10,000 men and women on the aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. They're looking out across the water and they see that their adversaries are the ones supplying some of the essential ingredients for antibiotics and other really important medicines. That's probably not a good thing. Has China ever threatened about what they, that they could withhold medications or that they're in some way, it, it make it dangerous for us? While writing China Rx, one of the wonderful people I interviewed who has a lot of experience uh, in this field said that yes, China has threatened the federal government in the past, not with any trade kerfuffle like we have now, has threatened the United States with shortages if the federal government didn't do what China wanted it to do. Do you know when that was, that threat? I mean, are we talking about recent it years? It was about or? 12 years ago. 12 years ago, okay. So, you know, just the, we've talked about China on the show many times. Uh, we've talked about the trade deals with them. We've talked about their repression and, the, and you know, how Christians are persecuted there. We've talked about their unwillingness to grant you know, any kind of relief to the Hong Kong protesters who really don't want to have to deal with China. I mean, it's an extremely repressive, totalitarian government. And the idea that they could use this even in the smallest degree, even a little bit of intentional wrongdoing to send the signal, it should be enough to make all of Washington wake up and say, we have to shift this medication and component production back to America, right? That's right, well, the rare earths, about China controlling 80% of the rare earths, it's the same playbook. We hear a lot about that in the media, and oh my goodness, our cell phones and hybrid cars might be at risk. This is medicines, and when you, when you control medicines, you really control the world. Oh, it is, the, there's a, I believe it was Lenin, one of the extremely repressive totalitarian leftists, or communists had that, you know, if you control the healthcare system, you control the people. You, that you will this do what the government wants because you right. need them for healthcare. That's right. Okay, so now that you've alarmed us all, and our listeners <laughs> may want to know, so what can the average person do about this? Sure, well, I think a lot of people want to know, how does this affect me? Yeah. There's an appendix in China RX that can give advice on how you might be able to find out where your medicines are made. There's a website and other resources to find out. I recommend when you go to the drugstore and if you happen to pick up a prescription, ask the pharmacist if you can see the box that it came in and take a picture of it. See the name of the distributor or it might have the name of the manufacturer and call them up and ask them. 
Some of them will tell you, but unfortunately, some of them won't. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry, I was just picturing while you were talking, the shift in the economics of prescribing drugs in America, even if you have generic drugs, you're not talking about the name brand, but the shift in the cost to bring back manufacturing generic drugs, even over a period of time, it costs more to produce things here, it costs more to pay people here. There are all sorts of expenses that go into the system in America to, before you get to the pharmacy at the hospital or, or the, your drugstore and get the medication. It just costs more here. And so I'm sure that's part of the pharmaceuticals company thinking is, we can't do it here. We, it'll drive everyone crazy because our costs will go so up so much. Well, there's, I think we need a little more information to actually come to that conclusion. So when you go to the drugstore and you pick up a prescription, What's behind that, say, let's say $20 prescription? There's some piece that goes to the manufacturer. There's some that goes to those that deliver it. Some goes to the pharmacy that's dispensing it. But there are a lot of other actors in there that take a share take a of that. a little piece of that price. And I think we need more transparency on where that $20 goes, who's getting it, and what they're doing with it. There's multi-billion dollar companies that are in there and distributing and and signing contracts, and when we have more transparency, we'll have a better idea. I'd rather see more money go to good quality manufacturers and have a more efficient system to, to save costs for consumers. Fewer middlemen, fewer middle players. There you go, and the other thing that I think is very exciting, if we wanted to, is there's new technology to make pharmaceuticals. And you know, we make potato chips with more innovation today than we do our pharmaceuticals. So there's technology today, and I went down and visited at a biotech park, and they're making a thousand pills of a really important antibiotic in a box, a layperson's language, in a lab in 24 hours, continuous quality control. We can make it at lower cost, about 40% less per pill, if we would invest in this new technology. We'll have to put up the money for the investment, but once it's made, the actual manufacturing cost would be a lot less and we wouldn't have to depend on China. And that would bring economic prosperity back to our country. Oh, bring prosperity and just a sense of security Absolutely. and safety. You're not wondering what's in the drug you're taking. I, I just Absolutely. think that's, oh my gosh. Well, uh, you had one more story I want to get back to. I kind of forgot about it, but I want to go back to it. It was a story about someone who had a, um, was taking blood thinner medication. And maybe we touched on that, but the, there was a yes. blood thinner medication, very common, that had, is that the one that had the airline? That's right. Had uh, the, go ahead. Yeah, we tell the story in China RX, it's the opening story of a Johns Hopkins trained physician who walked into a very well-known hospital in his community. It was late at night, he had a stomach ulcer and they admitted him and in the morning he got a couple doses of this blood thinner called heparin. Yeah. And it's clearly documented within 11 minutes of getting that heparin, his heart began to fail and all his other organs began to fail. Shut down. The following week he had to have his heart taken out because it was gone. And he was put on an artificial heart machine and he waited for several months for a transplant. Meanwhile, the following month he's sitting in his hospital bed at the hospital with his wife next to him watching the evening news and he hears on the news about contaminated heparin from China turns to his wife and said, oh my God, I got a lot of heparin. I wonder if it was contaminated. Okay. Now it's always 
tricky to show cause and effect. Right. But what other explanation is there in this otherwise 46-year-old healthy man? But he subsequently died. He did. Oh, he I was hoping die. you would have a good story ending that story. Okay. It's, it's a, a real terrible tragedy. And there are hundreds of Americans that died because of contaminated heparin, again, done for economically motivated reasons in China. And there's no accountability, none whatsoever. Well, I think you're going to change that. My, my we we have to you're change, it. change that. Well, all of us together have to change it. Well, that's one thing I was going to say. Again, this book that we're talking about, Rosemary Gibson wrote, is called China Rx, Exposing the Risks of, of America's Dependence on China for Medicine. This is what it looks like. Order it from Amazon, just like I did. And if you get informed enough, the thing I think we can do, because I always get listeners asking, well, what can we do about it? You know, tell your 25 best friends, number one. Mm -hmm. And then number two, if there's legislation or even mention to your congressman, hey, I read this book. I'm concerned. Why don't you guys look into this? Because if Congress gets a sense the American people are behind this, or the president gets a sense the American people are aware of this, the, when they move to act, they won't meet the resistance they sometimes do, or they may meet resistance from people saying, wait a minute, you put a law, you're proposing a law mm -hmm. that's going to make my medicine cost more? No, thank you. But if we realize the danger we face because China's making our medications and the components that go to the medications, then I think Congress will have the, um, just to be determined to do something about this. And Congress will be having hearings in the next couple of months, so it's prime time, it's on their radar. And I wanna let your listeners know that we donate proceeds for good causes from China RX. Oh, that's great. Okay, even better reason to buy the book because they donate proceeds to good causes. Okay, Rosemary Gibson, I'm so impressed. I was telling you oh. earlier before we came on the air, I, I couldn't write this book. This is a serious medical researcher's mission type book, but honestly, really waking many people in America up to this incredible national security threat. But so, I wrote it so everybody can read it. Yes, you, yes, it's readable. I, it's just... It's wonderful. I hope you'll read it. Okay. Rosemary, thank you so much oh, for coming Debbie, in. Oh, Debbie, thank you so very much. Loved having you here. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, folks, this, I'm telling you, greatest book. you got to do it and think about this issue. As, as you were hearing from Rosemary a moment ago, if most doctors don't know and the hospitals don't know, then all of us are kind of uh, kind of operating in the dark, operating in the, you know, in the realm where we think we understand we're getting safe and healthy medicines. After all, we're coming to a hospital or a doctor's office in America. It's always safe here. And we're taking medications manufactured in China, which have both a tremendously dangerous potential national security threat and don't have the standards we would have in place in America for production of medicines that will save and protect our lives. Rosemary Gibson, China Rx, gotta do it. I also want to talk today, there was the most amazing little exchange uh, between Donna Brazile, if you remember that name, she was the, uh, she is a Hillary Clinton campaign supporter to beat the band. She also became the head of the DNC. She was chairwoman of the Democrat National Committee. She was on a show, that, on a Fox Nation show, I think it's David Webb's show, and she made the most amazing admission I'm calling this segment, you know, she admits the Dems are race baiters. I want to have you just play, Matt, they're very wonderful, to play this little clip and then we'll talk about it. Exit question. Some of your Democrat colleagues on the stage call President Trump a racist. Do you think Donald Trump is a racist? I don't know Donald Trump. I don't know his heart. But here's what I tell people. As a woman of color, I get asked this question more than I've ever been asked before. I, I don't know Donald Trump. I know his policies. I want him to address things in a humane way. I don't want him to, to tell me or anyone else to send me back when my family has been here for over 300 years. I don't want him to call certain countries on the planet 
asshole. I want President Trump to be the president of all Americans. That Do person. you know I get in trouble when I don't say that? People on my left accuse me of, you know he's a racist. I, I don't know what's in his heart. We can cut her up, yeah. I gotta tell you, obviously Donna Brazil is not my, you know, political, she's not, not this, I don't see things the same way she does in America. But that's really an amazing admission to make on essentially national television on one this uh, Fox, Fox Nation show. She, a black woman, former head of the DNC, strong ally with Hillary Clinton, out there every day advocating for left-wing policies, even though now you may realize she works for Fox. It was a hire by Fox. Some people thought it was kind of a surrender to the left. Other people thought it would bring more you know, fair and balanced. She's a Fox commentator. She was willing to say that she gets in trouble. She gets in trouble with her other left-wing friends if she won't call Donald Trump a racist. And we go to this topic quite often in the show. I'm gonna continue going back to it. The American left uses the term racist, uses the race-baiting impact of the term, just, just the outraging impact of the term racist. They use it to stir up voters. They use it to make people feel like they don't dare to speak up and say what they really think. The, the term racist is overused by the left. In fact, more people have been commenting about it. I mean, how many issues can the left grab onto and say, you either agree with a left-wing view on this issue or you're racist? It is now being used with respect to border security. Left-wingers saying if you won't support, you know, that if you want the wall built or you want border security, you must be a racist. Left-wingers say that uh, climate change is a, it's a racial issue. So if you won't support the Green New Deal, you must be a racist. Issues, whether it's tax policy, uh, international relations, the whole, the climate change treaty was talked about as it was a racist thing for President Trump to withdraw from it. There's issue after issue after issue where the left uses the race argument. This is a grotesque disservice to America. It's a grotesque disservice to the concept of serious political conversation in this country among Americans who really do want to come together. They really do want to try to understand each other. Most Americans do. But her, for Donna Brazile to admit that she is criticized, she gets in trouble with other Democrats when she won't call Trump a racist, which she doesn't see it that way. She sees, she, and she talked in this longer interview went on, she disagrees with him about this policy, that policy. That's what politics is supposed to be about. That's what political conversation is supposed to be about. What challenges we have and how to solve them. The left has dissolved itself, has just devolved into a you know, perpetual outrage manufacturing machine, a perpetual accusation of racism machine, and it has really caused it just tremendous damage to the fabric and culture of our country and to the ability of thoughtful Americans to have conversations about tough issues. I actually commend Donna Brazile. She didn't even like President Trump, to be clear. She doesn't like him, she doesn't have to like him. But for her to say on national television, you know, she gets in trouble because all the left really wants her to do is to say that Trump's a racist. And they particularly hound her because she happens to be black. So that, in my view, is really a racist mindset on the left. They insist because of the color of her skin, 
she must call Trump a racist. They're saying to her, Donna Brazile, you aren't allowed to think for yourself. You're not allowed to reach your own conclusions. You're not allowed to hold a different opinion than what we tell you you can hold. We've decided that the view of black Democrats must be that Trump's a racist. And they're saying, we don't respect you enough to allow you the dignity and the grace and the respect as an individual to think for yourself. That, my friends, is actually racism. The last story I want to hit today, this is one of the most moving, I, I don't know, this really grabbed me and I want to be sure and talk with you a little bit about it. This has to do with a dad, a man in America, Andrew Pollack, P-O-L-L-A-C-K, who lost his daughter, his daughter Meadow Pollack, was killed in the Parkland shooting, the Parkland school shooting. He, this dad, Pollack, has written a book and it's called Why Meadow Died. The people and policies that created the Parkland killer and endanger America's students. On our website, americacanwetalk.org, on our homepage, if you go across the top of the homepage under shows and the drop down, there's a choice for a list of links. I put a link to just one article this, do, this guy has written, this dad, but he is making some profound arguments, some important arguments, some fact-based arguments about school shootings and what should be done about them. And this is coming from a man, I mean, I don't even wanna think of the agony any parent goes through to lose a child. Almost unbearable, almost unbearable. And so this man has turned his grief and his outrage at losing his daughter into a mission to try to wake Americans up, wake the public schools up, wake Americans up to the idea that school policies in great part caused the problems that led to the Parkland shooting. In particular, I'll talk just a moment about what he's saying about the Parkland incident. He talked about the guy who was a shooter at the Parkland school shooting. He was, as his term, uh, it's a clever term he uses, a known wolf, meaning the school already knew he was a really big problem. He didn't shock them one day and show up with a gun and they were saying, oh my gosh, he seemed like such a nice kid. He was a very, very, very troubled kid. He was, if he came to school when he was at Parkland, he would regularly be frisked as in, as you know, people do, police do when they're arresting you, frisk you to make sure you're not carrying weapons. He got frisked when he came to school. He was told he could never bring a backpack to school. He couldn't have a backpack because they were worried what he was going to do with that backpack. There was a school administrators banned him having a backpack regularly taken to the principal's office. So a kid like that, what this dad is writing about is even though all this happened to him, you wouldn't know it if you read this shooter's school file. You wouldn't know he was a problem. You would, you would think, oh, this is a regular Joe kid because the schools have embraced this idea that in order to stop the school to prison pipeline, they don't record bad behavior they don't discipline sufficiently for bad behavior. So when a kid like this, who had been troubled for years, known to other students, in fact, this guy, this dad Pollock said that the students at the school, they knew even before the announcement was made the day of the shooting, they knew who the shooter was. They knew who this kid was because of the way he had acted. But this school had temporarily sent him away to some reform tool school type thing for very troubled students who need far more discipline. But this endless effort to keep mainstreaming him, sending him back, sure he's fine, insufficient recording, uh, records kept of his behavior, he ends up back in Parkland School. So his dad is just saying, the, um, 
the, in Florida, the county where this occurred, the Parkland County uh, shooting occurred, Parkland school shooting occurred, was Broward County. They embarked on a quest to fight the school to prison pipeline. So they did that by diminishing punishments, failing to keep accurate records, failing to refer people. They tried to lower suspensions, expulsions, and arrests, and they systematically swept disturbing behavior under the rug. So there wasn't enough in this kid's record to get him the heck out of school or to get him in enough legal trouble so that he would not have been available, been able that day to have a gun and go to that school. But the reason this dad wrote this article that I really urge you to read is because he's now talking about legislation in California. The state of California, the land of moral idiocy on steroids in California, the, they are contemplating a bill they're contemplating a bill that prohibits suspensions and expulsions for anything except violent behavior. So if the kid comes in school and he is verbally abusive and he is threatening people and he's yelling things, he's disrupting class and making it impossible to learn, can't, can't suspend him. No, no, we're gonna, in fact, they have a term they use. I wanna share what, they, what the uh, lefties are, want to have in place of actual discipline. They use the expression they want to have restorative justice sessions and healing circles. Restorative justice, restorative justice, healing circles. It's like surrounding him with love and making talk it through with him instead of actual consequences for bad behavior. And so California is embarking on this idea that has failed miserably in Broward County and failed miserably in a couple other places I want to mention in just a moment. But the idea is somehow you'll prevent this school to prison pipeline if you have no rules. If you just let everything go. If you say, well, we don't wanna give him a bad record because I could hurt him, so we're just going to ignore the fact that every day he comes into school and disrupts the class and threatens kids and makes everybody scared, makes everybody nervous. So the idea is to, they're going to end, or they're gonna ban suspensions and expulsions for everything nonviolent. I wanna share with you just a few examples he has and the arguments he makes, his dad makes. One is, when you put these policies in place, the entire school atmosphere every day is disrupted for everyone, not just for you know the kid who needs discipline, but for the whole school. So in Philadelphia, as one example, math proficiency result, test results dropped when they put this in place. It's not because the disruptive students weren't doing as well in math, it's because all the other students could not focus in class, couldn't listen to the teacher, couldn't follow what was happening, so their math proficiency scores dropped Truancy skyrocketed from 25 to 40%. And the, so this is all in response to a policy that says we're not gonna suspend them unless they're really, really violent. And there's an education researcher named Dominic Zarecki. He studied the effect of suspension bans in several California districts, Los Angeles, Oakland, San Francisco, and Pasadena. Harm to math achievement large enough to take a student from the 50th percentile to the 39th percentile. The kids are dropping in their ability to perform on tests because the entire school is disrupted by the few students who cannot be suspended because they didn't punch anybody yet. You also had these, um, this, uh, the idea of these restorative uh, justice and healing circles were completely obliterated the value and virtue of them obliterated by a RAND Corporation study that found in Pittsburgh, RAND Corporation, you know, gold standard kind of entity, 
did a study in Pittsburgh, restorative justice, restorative justice, restorative justice harmed academic achievement among black students. It's not a racial thing. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. If you behave badly in school and the school will not isolate you, remove you, force you to come to terms with your behavior, everybody else suffers. They talk about this school to prison pipeline actually made worse. In Los Angeles, the school banned suspensions. So they had more referrals to law enforcement because they can't get the kid out of school. They can't suspend him. So the school is faced with letting the kids stay there and disrupt the entire school or call law enforcement. So this school to prison pipeline made worse because more kids who might have just gotten suspended, might have just gotten a talking to, might have just gotten sent home for a week, instead got referred to law enforcement, giving those kids the record that will cause them eventually, believe the advocates, to lead toward the increased likelihood of ending up in prison. This is a, I mean, the, the stats he has in here about teachers afraid to go to school, schools afraid can't function properly, students afraid to go to school, performance in all sorts of ways, and the whole thing it boils down to is this. There is, I mean, I use the word moral idiocy. I don't know what other term to use. There is no moral grounding, no rational grounding in what the left is pushing with these policies. There's nothing rational about them. And they, the leftists, won't look at the evidence. They won't look at the studies, the Rand Corporation study, the education researcher study. They don't want to know the facts. They want to sound like they're doing something good, sound like they've got some virtue signaling, aren't we great, we don't do suspensions and expulsions, we just do restorative justice, restorative justice, we just do healing circles, and that solves everything. Meanwhile, the schools are suffering, the kids are suffering, the test scores are suffering, the teachers don't like it there, the whole school atmosphere is harmed. But the virtue signaling leftists, including the governor of California, apparently willing to sign into law something that says we're going to ban suspensions and expulsions in all cases of nonviolent behavior. He is unleashing onto the public schools in California unending chaos. And he's proud of himself. So I give huge kudos and credit to this dad because some of the people after the Parkland shooting engaged in a quick and, and just went right off into the anti-gun, you know, uh, anti-Second Amendment, take all the guns away uh, kind of thinking that just kind of knee-jerk doesn't solve the problem. And this dad actually went to the effort to figure out what happened inside his own child's high school, what happened in Parkland, what Broward County school policies caused the problem that this kid could even be there that day, and that is also becoming an advocate for rational school policy. And you know, honestly folks, it's a crazy thing in America that we should be talking about the idea that maybe schools should insist upon a level of behavior, standards of conduct that were the norm in schools in America for 200 plus years. And all of a sudden now we're thinking we're advancing as a civilization advancing as a culture by abandoning those basic standards of conduct. And this isn't the worst thing, but another aspect of this is the kids who don't know how to behave, who don't behave well at home, whose parents don't teach them, who arrive at school with bad attitudes and disruptive attitudes, they are not helped by this left-wing virtue signaling, don't worry, we'll never, you'll never get in trouble kind of policies. Those kids are being told by the schools, it's okay to act that way. 
you can disrupt the whole class. You can be abusive. You can be offensive. You can be obnoxious. Never going to have any consequence. Don't worry. So that kid finishes high school having whatever the heck he managed to learn out into the world, never having learned the discipline, the standards of normal human conduct in America that are required to ever hold a job to ever function lawfully in society. What they've been told is okay, their conduct can lead them to, after they turn 18, thinking these behaviors are okay, that will end up and result in their arrests. This isn't even nice to the kids who are spared suspension and expulsion. It's a huge issue in America. I mean, I'm just kudos to this dad for writing that book. Uh, so I'm going to get the book. I'm going to share it with you once I get it and talk to you about it. But I'm really grateful someone in his position is willing to speak out. And finally, my friends, we're going to go back today to we always do at the end of the show to why these stories we talked about matter to you. So we'll start with their left wings. Uh, this is the left wing. I don't even want to call them radical women's march. It's not a women's march. The anti-American left does not stand for women. We have to reject their women's march label. This is a left wing march of men and women who support anti-Semitic and anti-American goals. American women do not support the hate Israel message. Support. I think you should support Feminexit. Savvy women walking away from leftism. Just like Blexit and Brexit, we need savvy women walking away from leftism. Women, stand up and speak up to preserve America and American liberty. The messages of my 2012 book, Ladies Can We Talk, are still the answers we need today, just as, just as right today. Uh, medicines made in China, why it matters. American dependence on medicines and core chemical components made in China is a national security risk. America currently has no capacity to manufacture our everyday antibiotics. That's crazy. Most doctors don't even know where the prescription drugs and their components were manufactured. Read China Rx by Rosemary Wood, spread the word, and tell your member of Congress too while you're at it. Donna Brazil and the race baiting why it matters to you. Brazil admits, I get in trouble for refusing to label Trump a racist. She was the DNC chairwoman and a longtime Hillary supporter. Americans must understand now and forever the fomenting of racial tension and division is a deliberate political tactic of the left. It's dangerous and poisonous to America's culture, which is why the left does it. The Democrats will use it as long as it manipulates people. Americans must finally resolve to stop being played by the race card. And this Parkland father on a mission, and why it matters to you, Parkland father Andrew Pollock knows the Parkland massacre which claimed his precious daughter Meadows' life was avoidable if only common sense instead of political correctness shaped school discipline policy. He's waking America up from the politically correct moral idiocy that says no suspensions or expulsions for bad behavior unless violence is involved. Those, because those policies endanger everyone, substituting restor restorative, restorative, restorative justice and healing circles for real discipline drives down test scores, increases violence, and fails to attach consequences for behavior for students. Schools, teachers, kids, and America deserve better. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. I'm Debbie George S. This is America Can We Talk. Love to hear from you. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. Check out our website. Like this Facebook page. Please subscribe on YouTube. Contact me. I love the back and forth with this American political conversation. I love talking about America because America matters. Talk to you next time.
America, can we talk truth about America? Can you